So then. If you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast, inspiring conversations on land, sea, in the air, and even in outer space. Hello, folks. I am Lance Fever Myers. And I am LB Dio. That's right. You are listening to the Persistence of Vision podcast. If you want to check out other podcasts that we have done, go to our website. That is pov-publishing.com. There you can see... Uh, all the links to our past podcasts. You can read comics by world-class artists. You can read essays, poetry, all kinds of cool stuff. Plus, there are links where you can click and go buy my book, Why So Much. You can buy LB's book, The Goddamn Fool. Yeah. What, have you, what do you have to say about that, LB? I say do it. I say do it. Why wait? Why wait? Don't think about how you could do it later. It's pointless. <laughs> it's absurd. This is the time to do it. We're coming to you uh, recording that is live from the North Door Lounge Bar in Austin, Texas, the beautiful city of the capital of the Texas state. And we are delighted to be here with this beautiful audience. We actually have a live audience today. Woo! What else do we have? Who else? We're equally delighted to have the lovely and talented Elizabeth Doss, the noted uh, actress, actor, playwright, uh, director, scholar, uh, <laughs> genius, and uh, and not only that, but she's here to discuss a book that she introduced to both of us that we had never heard of, but it's a Nobel Prize winning novel, so shame on us. It's called, well, I'll let you introduce it, Elizabeth. Uh, the book is called Independent People by Haldor Locksmith. Well, the Haldor Locksmith, yes. Um, yeah, and actually, the the that's a... A, a more perfected English translation. I think it's called, um, if you were to translate it directly from Icelandic, it's more like um, standalone folk or something yes. like that. Which I really like that title. Sounds much more grand, right? When I heard independent people, I thought like, Ordinary people, you know, like a movie type, you know, title. It didn't. It does not evoke the, what what the book actually is. Yeah, which is definitely standalone folk. For sure. <laughs> standalone folk. Well, we're all standalone folk here at the North Door. Uh, what brought this book to your attention? Are you Icelandic? Um, I'm not Icelandic. I have a really wonderful friend, Paul, who um, Paul Sullivan, who's I, I think has his PhD in literature or something, and Ooh. he's always. Um, Turning me on to really good books, and he turned this book on to uh, turned me on to this book um, towards the end of my pregnancy. Um, I have a one year old daughter oh, yes. who has a she has a Welsh name. It's Bronwyn, so there's mm. something something Northern European. Beautiful, um, wonderful. Yeah, she's named after actually a book. How green was my valley? Have you guys? Uh, I have heard of it. Yeah, that one won. I didn't win the. I think it won the National Book Award, not the. Um, well, then we don't. Not the, <laughs> not not the Nobel oh, Prize. <laughs> um, but he turned me on a book at the end of my pregnancy. And there's actually something nice about reading a book that is uh, so brutal and so difficult and so challenging when you know you're sort of you yourself are preparing to do um, something you've never know, done before, but you know it's going to be really hard. Yes. Well, I, I don't want to give anything away, but it, the book does involve a uh, the violent death in childbirth of a young woman so that I know, probably it's was really fascinating <laughs> to be reading that like eight months pregnant. <laughs> yeah I mean, it's actually i mean it is one of the 
that that moment in the book in particular is one of the things that drew me to it. Not only does a woman die in childbirth, this is the first wife of the um, of the protagonist, but um, she's laying frozen in her own blood, and the newborn child survives only because the dog um, in this in this old cabin has curled around it and kept it warm. So yeah, it was like it's the most. It's actually a lot like birth, which I think is the most tender and most violent experience um, I've ever had. Yes. Yes. Well, certainly. And the, the dogs are, uh, dogs come off very well in this book, don't they? <laughs> well, animals in general. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, sheep. Yeah. We, we were, we were extremely excited when you told us you wanted to read this book because of course it's about shepherds in the frozen wastes of Iceland <laughs> taking care of their sheep. So yeah. we thought, that uh, how how have I not read this already? Of course, I, I've yeah, read yeah. almost every great Let me book add about it. shepherds. I, but you mentioned that you said it's like a, a challenging book or a, di- a, a difficult book. I, I didn't find the the like the reading of it wasn't the challenging. Isn't challenging. No, I no, think it's, the it, con- I think it's content. To me, it's like where Tolstoy meets Cormac McCarthy or something. Mm. It's so um, I think, and also um, it's the book is tender and violent, um, and then. Uh, very close to its characters. I think there's like an intimacy where sometimes um, books that uh, where you feel like it's it's somehow allegorical, maybe you don't get as close to those characters in a way, but I feel like you're right. Um, you're like sitting on the brains and hearts of these, particularly right. um, um, the protagonist, Bajar Tour, I think is how you say his name, and his um, daughter, the one that was protected by the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, who was not his biological child, but then he grows up to um, to raise. So I think the book, it could be, you could say it's about shepherds. It's also <laughs> just about a father and a daughter kind right. of freezing and struggling and, and fighting and rebelling against one another. Yes. But the uh, the two books that it, that it called to mind for me were well, any Gabriel Garcia Marquez, totally. definitely cool, that yeah. definitely, feeling, yeah, that, but also The Good Earth. Mm-hmm. I felt it was very similar to The Good Earth. Yeah. Yeah. I have not read The Good Earth. I should. It's on my mm. list of things to read. It also, it feels, um, I mean, those feel right. It also feels, um, I don't know, like if you were to mix, it feels, it feels a little Melvillian to me. Right. Um, Melville. Well, we knew you were going to mention yeah, Melville well, at some point. I was waiting for you to mention Melville. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to get to it. Uh, Elizabeth Dawes, is it, is it not true? That you are a direct descendant of Herman Melville, the what? author of Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. No I'm way. A, yeah, I am. I'm a great, 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 three greats granddaughter of Herman Melville, and my daughter Bronwyn is now um, the four greats. Damn, four greats. We are among greatness. We had our our Moby Dick podcast live down here not oh, too long ago. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, I missed it. Well, you haven't missed it. It's on the podcast. <laughs> it's on the you internet. can hear it anytime that's you right. want. Yes, and we, and we I it, think we mentioned you, actually. Well, did we, we might have. It is, but it does. I, Everyone will have to go back and listen to find out. It is. I feel like it's apropos, though. There's things about it that remind me of Moby Dick. Yes. Did anybody else have that experience or did I? Uh, I kind of liked it better than Moby Dick. I like Richard. it better than Moby Dick, too. Yeah. Totally <laughs> you hear that, folks? Well, I think, and this goes back to a great question of, like, what, what becomes your favorite book because i think we can all agree there's great literature i've read moby dick and mm-hmm. anna Karen. i mean there's these great books that we read yes um 
and some of them speak to us more than others. But then these books that this book really um, took me over, you know. So what was it that pushed it further than, say, Moby Dick? Or... Something like Moby Dick. Or, uh, <laughs> well, I think so. Um, well, I grew up in the country and oh. uh, I didn't have a um, I lived in a house with um, my uh, my family, my five brothers and sisters. I shared a room with um, five siblings at one point and we were building our house as I was growing up. And so the um, protagonist, there was a lot of like the children having to help build and garden and haul firewood, etc. So I had a kind of bucolic upbringing that made this book felt very close to, even though it was, I mean, they have it way worse. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I mean, I was off of, you know, I was off of Fitzy Road between Orkill and Dripping Springs. I mean, yes. hardly Iceland, but still there was a kind of, um, that rural familiarity, that way that, um, 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 to do hard things, you have to be really, really stubborn. And that's, I think, um, the kind of person I was raised with, the the Bajar, Bajar I don't know how you say his name, but he reminds me very much of my of my own dad. Did witches ever live there? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, and also this idea that the land is cursed. Right. right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh, I that's, love the beginning. It's all know. about the witches and the sorcerers and everything. Well, it's like this old Icelandic proto time that sort of converges with. Um, a can, kind of contemporary time. Right, right. It really draws you in. That, that's what sucks you in. And then the rest is she, she, shepherds and... <laughs> shepherds, but I think, I mean, I, I was really, really taken with the relationship between the father and the daughter and the kind of general brutality of, of their circumstances. So like, so I, I think it's, I mean, we're not giving anything away to say so many people die. Yes. Um, and the death becomes both, it's tragic every time, but it almost also becomes a, an absurdity. Yes. Um, there's so uh, there's so much tragedy that they have to endure these characters. And I feel like there's a similar parallel to like our contemporary world now because we have so much access to media and information and we're kind of bombarded with these days. It's almost why I can't go on Facebook. There's, there's too many tragedies to yes. sort of perpetually hmm. endure and so even though they're living um and also the book it interestingly kind of sets up iceland as though there's no other place on earth yes right but isn't there a, a part this and then the world world war, war right and then yes. there's a world war yes. i mean the greatest books are totally full of flaws and contradictions. sure of course i mean you know um but yeah there's a and actually what's interesting about that did you want to oh no i was just i i i no go ahead well i think what so there's like World War One happens um, as an exterior uh, event, right? But then starts to um, um, impact the village because the price of mutton and wool goes up. Yes. So right. So then this village, these people who have been totally poor forever, start to experience uh, a little um, reprieve from that poverty. But the wealth then kind of turns and destroys them also because they start making all of these really bad choices with yes. money, mm. um, which I think we can see all kinds of parallels to that, that people who haven't had a lot of money and then suddenly get a lot of money, it's like winning the lottery. You don't know what to do with it and right. you end up broker than you were before. Yeah, I was just going to say the, the, the thing that I, I want the audience to realize is that even though these people are living in rural Iceland, it isn't 
this isn't a book about, uh, you know, like a guy who doesn't know anyone or is out in the middle of nowhere by himself. I mean, this is a community and they have a relationship with the government. Yeah. They talk about politics. They talk about the laws. They, uh, they have a, uh, who is the guy? Uh, the bailiff. The bailiff. Yes. Yeah. The bailiff is this, I guess, Dutch, uh, landholder who they're tenants of or mostly tenants of. Right. Right. So like the, I mean, the whole premise of the book is that this one, um, far sheep farmer shepherd that, um, that the book primarily follows is he's just bought his independent. He's bought a little croft of land or put the first down payment, um, on this like little meager plot of land and a tiny cabin. And the way that the cabins are set up, it's, um, it's depicted so interestingly that animals live on the bottom floor and then the people live in one room just above the animals. And <laughs> so it's like the, uh, the undergrowth, like these, um, um, the animals are such an important character. I mean, we were sort of yes. joking about being sheep, but I mean, they live that <laughs> close to being, to being, to being very, and then, so these characters, the humans themselves really, I think exhibit a lot of, um, of animal-like doggedness also. And there's a lot of rich social interaction with the other people. And and also the main character is not only a shepherd, but we could almost give the people the impression that he was some illiterate or something. But in fact, he's a poet. Mm -hmm. He's a student of poetry who, as he's tending his sheep, is, is all the time in his head composing poetry, reciting poetry, and he has extremely high, I would definitely say snobbish standards for poetry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he doesn't, I forget the term he uses, but it's, it's some, some, it's a certain type of quatrain has to be present in a poem or else, as far as he's it's concerned, it's just junk, yeah. It has to be so complicated, you kind of can't understand it, or it's total nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and he's fiercely independent. That's, that's right. The, well, that's what I was going to bring up is the the significance of the title. Uh, so the the translation is "Independent People," and it's the the man is fiercely. I mean, like you said, it begins with him buying a plot of land, so he's no longer the working the land for someone else. He and is. The land he happens find, to finds be that he cursed. is right. he is uh, finally in his his own man and in charge of his own destiny, that sort of thing. Yeah, and then the land he bought is cursed. Right. Right. But he doesn't, I mean, he kind of thumbs his nose at that. He doesn't it, care. Yeah, yeah he's, but but then all of these terrible things keep happening to him. So it's sort of like, you know, that I feel like uh, it's, it's, he doesn't believe it, but I think it's important for you, the reader, to know that the land is cursed. You think? I think so. And also the <laughs> stories of what she did. I mean, like, this is in no way a, a feminist book, but it's interesting that the witch had, that cursed the land was so powerful and so barbaric. And there's like these really great passages about like, um, um, like you can still see the remnants of the blood on the snow from like the men she maimed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, she she ta she kill has her her husband take all her children out and yeah. like kill them in various ways, throw them in the river, or like bury them under a pile of rocks or something. And that was what she did in her life. And then she's like a ghost that continues to haunt the land. It's brutal. Um, she's wicked. And she's she's more dangerous. Uh, as a ghost than she was in her actual life. Yeah, which is, you know, true of a lot of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and then bad thing, and then, um, the, are you going to be a really bad ghost, do you think? 
Oh, I'm going to be a terrible ghost. Yeah. I mean, you know, people are going to say the same thing about me. That he was terrible in real life, yeah. but he's so much worse as a ghost. <laughs> I want to be so much more productive and much, yeah. as a ghost. much more creative. Uh-huh. That's my goal. But you know, it occurs to me now as we're sitting here talking about it, that the, the main character, whose name I can't remember. Uh, oh, Bajartor. Bajartor. Well, let's just say it's that. Let's just yeah, call it Jartor, that. Bajartor. <laughs> People on the internet can make fun of us. But he's he's very American in a way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I you think know? that's what's... And then his youngest son decides to go to America. Yeah. yeah. I think it may be a parody of America to some extent. I think so. But at the same time, the it's... maleness, certainly. Yeah. But the great thing is that because because it's, it's such a powerful work of literature, it's never merely a parody. You know, I mean, he's actually an extremely admirable and interesting person, even though he's somewhat ridiculous. Yeah, I I think I think that's, again, the mark of a great book is that like a a character is coming to you in so many different layered ways. Right. That they're in one part of parody and that they're another part, something you deeply empathize with and and another part. um, um, You see. Yeah, you see how flawed they are. Yes. Well, what do you think of? It's maybe a stretch, but hear me out. That's let a me, stretch. Let me try this, okay? So this was written, was published in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, the, I mean, it's hard to know whether or not the Great Depression had really taken hold by the time this book was being written or... Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Probably. I mean, I imagine that if it was published, he was... I think he was actually... I think I read somewhere that he was writing this book in LA of all places in 1928. <laughs> oh, 28. Okay. Yeah. So it, it, it's hard to know because I think what I was going to try to suggest is that when you think of, you know, the time period, artistically speaking, it's sort of high modernism, right? Yeah. Which is like the height of like uh, a society treasuring individuality rather than, mm-hmm. you know, following the establishment, mm-hmm. right? Which I, I, don't know. I hear I am like completely just making this up as I go. But I think I mean. But when I, I think the 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 book um, makes it so the character really really treasures his individuality. Right. Oh, individuality over you know, and you can in an economic sense, in a familial sense, mm-hmm. in every sense of the word, he wants to be his own man. Right. And I think that is. I think that's almost what curses him. Yeah. And and so I think it's a little bit of an indictment of the idea of, of you know capitalism of definitely of yeah. um, you know the idea of high modernism being this this you know um, place where individuality is is the utmost. Well, so you know yes, and I I I, I think it is. Um, I know that Locksmith, just from a few people I've talked to about this book, was a um, was a. De- a serious Marxist. And, um, and I also know that he, so he didn't win the Nobel prize for literature until the fifties. And Mm. this book was written and was published much earlier. So, um, there was the, and then it wasn't translated into English until after that. And there was, I think some sort of, um, in the red scare McCarthy era, um, a movement to not publish this mm-hmm. book in um, the United States. Yeah, it's interesting, interesting because yeah. it's it's very far from being agit prop or a no. Marxist propaganda. You you really have to read between the lines to get a sense of well, what the political aspects of it at all. I think. I think it's so. I think it's so deep, and these are inferences that 
we can, I mean, partially what I think you experience in the book is how deeply they live in a totally, I mean, they are within a community, but this community is deeply isolated and lives the way it basically has lived for 8,000 years, right? Since like um, civilization, since agriculture was discovered. Mm -hmm. These people are living kind of the way that they have always lived. Um, And you see that like the introduction of wealth and basically um, gaining, um, profiting off of somebody else's labor Mm. is, um, is um, um, certainly not to their benefit. Uh, Right. It is complex though, in, in that, I mean, it's not a simple like Mm -hmm. indictment of any particular, you know, one particular way of, of living or one particular yeah. attitude, you know, yeah. towards how society should or shouldn't be run. Yeah. Right. I, I, I totally agree. I think it's written from a much deeper place. It's like the layers of complexity. Um, just in turn, I, I think about, you know, if you were to write, this is a book about um, how messed up it can be to be a sheep farmer. And I, like, <laughs> this is a book about a father and a daughter who are, um, um, not biologically related, but sort of um, entangled permanently as souls. And like, how do you how do you parse that out in this one life? Like, I think it's a book about. I mean, I, we we haven't really talked very much about that relationship yet. But I think yes. um, he, you know, like Bajartur, who is the most selfish, um, most interested in his own autonomy, decides to raise the essentially bastard child of his dead wife. Right. right. Cheating um, dead wife. His yes. cheating dead wife, right? And so and that And it's it's his uh, uh the bailiff, the bailiff. The bailiff's son. Right. Right. So that of yeah, so it's she cheated on him with uh like a sworn enemy's child. Like yes. it's just every which way it's wrong. But he feels <laughs> this like great tenderness towards his child and takes care of her I think better than his he he then later, we also haven't talked about the granny, who's True. really, really, really fantastic. We have, this book sounds so dark, but it's very humorous. Yes, also. It's that's very also funny. important to keep in mind, folks. Oh. Uh, the book is funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is what I was saying. Like, the tragedy sort of becomes its own absurdity after a while. Absolutely. Um. If you can't laugh at a woman dying in the frost <laughs> no. uh, with her baby... Well, his baby being saved by the dog's warmth. Being saved by the warmth of a dog. I mean, again, violent and tender. And something in there is is so, uh, I don't know. We know what Oscar Wilde said about one of Dickens' books. He said, uh, a person would have to have a heart of stone to read the death of little Nell without laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we have a little uh, excerpt? An excerpt from the book? Yeah, or, or just a... Let's Anything see. you want to read. Well, I, I thought this um, in this introduction who was written by, what the heck is this guy's name? Um, Brad Lathauser? Lighthouser, maybe? Lighthouser, I don't know. We don't care. We don't care we about care. you, Brad. We, so, care. we do. We care, Brad, we, we, because <laughs> I think this is, Brad, wherever you are, I think this is a really beautiful introduction. Um, but I think it, uh, it, uh, it might, it might. Encourage somebody to read this book. Yes, that I'll would read be good. this little section here. Like 100 years of solitude, with which it shares family resemblance, independent people in its opening pages evokes the dawn of time. Sure. Yeah. He works with Jay, folks. <laughs> yeah. All right. Should I start over? Yes, that would All be right. good. Okay. 
Like 100 years of solitude with, with, it, with which it shares family resemblances, independent people in its opening pages evokes the dawn of time. Garcia Marquez's novel commences on a blue morning when the boulders in a stream bed look like dinosaur eggs. Independent people's first chapter summons up the days when the world was first settled in 1874 AD, for that is the year when the Norsemen arrived in Iceland. And one of the books... 874. Oh, what Sorry. did I say? 1874. Oh, I should have said 874 AD. For that is the year when the Norsemen arrived in Iceland. And one of the book's very wry conceits is that no other world but Iceland exists. The tale takes place among far farmers habitually so impoverished that they died without ever having transacted a business deal involving more than a few dollars at a time. These are men who might venture outside their valleys once or twice a year, hiking to a little fishing village to purchase a few provisions. For them, even um, Raj, how do you Reykjavik. say Reykjavik. 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 Reykjavik is a misty dream. So I think that sort of speaks to the, ice, the isolation. Yes. Um, and you know what I learned today playing basketball? What did you learn? What, I learned crew, you always crew? hit the cutter. No, I learned that uh, a guy named Jeremy was there, and he said that Iceland has the most authors per, per capita in the world. Oh, how fascinating. But then I also learned that this Haldor Lux, not playing basketball, <laughs> but um, by reading the rest of the Um he's like the great towering... Um, figure in Icelandic literature. Yes. He's like the... And amazingly prolific. There's yeah. tons of books by him on yeah. Amazon.com. <laughs> totally. totally. Yes. Actually, I don't know how many of his books have been translated into it English. It looked like a lot. I mean, oh, I, I got the impression. It almost looked like they were a series, but I don't think they are. Well, I know that he had books that were published in, in series. Like, you know, this was published in parts. Mm -hmm. Oh, Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but again, the you know we've we've been talking about how dark and and depressing and and how complex the the uh, the, the messages are. But again, the the language is not terribly complex. It's mm -hmm. it's it, very inviting. It's easy to read. It's it reads like a fairy tale almost. Yeah. Um, to me, yeah. uh, like a like you're reading a Tolkien book or something. It's like yeah. um, though but, I'm not a not, I don't really go that. for you don't like <laughs> then we'll go back to Gabriel Garcia. Yeah, Marquez. it feels there a little bit more right. realistic. Right. It is. It, it is real. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, despite the fact that it mentions the cursed lands and the sorcerers right. that were first there and that sort of thing, the the lion's share of the book is is about relationships and about. Um, you know, surviving and things like that. Yeah, I think it's a, I think I read somewhere it's called, they call it like lyrical naturalism mm. or something like that, which is a thing. The other thing that, uh, that's, that sounds interesting to me, lyrical naturalism. Sure. Um, God, that sounded so snooty. I think Tolkien's fine. It's just not really <laughs> I don't. Uh, Nerd hey, alert. Tolkien. Nerd alert. Okay, okay. And I don't know what's... Yeah, uh, um, but I do think... So Folks, this book is about hobbits. Something that I... Like a thing that I call my own writing. I have words for my own writing. Um, I, I like to write in a vein that I call surregionalism. Which is surregionalism. Which is just sort of, and I think a lot of writers that I love <laughs> do this surregionalism thing. I'm thinking of like um, Federico Garcia Lorca or Gabriel Garcia Marquez or places where like 
the time and place is so much a character that it it makes the world surreal like mm-hmm. it really makes oh i love the that yeah place that you're entering feel so um peculiar could you tell us a little bit about your own writing Faulkner's totally uh-huh yeah lives i think in that vein um my writing well my first my very first the first play that i wrote actually i moved to spain to be to start writing this was like in 2000 and um Eight. Uh, yeah, it was when I, I voted for um, Barack Obama. Is it okay that I say that on your podcast? What? Uh, you did what? Yes. I voted for Barack Obama by mail from Veles Rubio, Spain. Oh, isn't that And nice? like, yeah, I went to Correos and filled out my ballot. I mean, sent off my ballot. It's so fun to, but I do feel like there was this great, um, among people that I know, radical leftists. All my friends are very radical leftists. Um, there was like a great celebration um, in 2008. And I was kind of alone and missing it on another, like living in this really tiny village in Spain. Um, but there, I uh, uh, I felt like I just needed to go away and be alone and figure out what my brain was like. I started writing my first um, play called Murder Ballad, Murder Mystery, mm-hmm. which then got a production in Austin in 2009. And it's a total work of surregionalism. It sort of bases, um, um, uh, it sort of strings together uh, a series of murder ballads. So hmm. characters from murder, are y'all familiar with murder ballads? Oh, of yeah. course. Yeah. We, we have some the transgressors. Transgressors, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The transgressors. Um, so this sort of made those characters come to life, and I called it an existential whodunit. Huh. Um, it was really fun, and and uh, and then from there, um, I wrote another play after that called um, Hill Country Underbelly, which I think is a little bit akin to um, Independent People. It's about this like family, this pack of orphans living off of the land. Yes, um, which were based on my siblings. The wretched of the earth. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Um, and, then, and then I started I, I started to work. I feel like I work on plays and series. So then I started a series, um, a play called Mast, that started to look at actually um, my grandfather, Herman Melville's great-grandson's life. And um, he, he was also my, my grandfather, who's Herman Melville's great-grandson. Um, was a um, newspaper editor in the Dominican Republic during the um, Trujillo regime in the 1940s. And my mother was born, actually, she's from, she's from DR. She's from uh, de Santo Domingo. And um, she was held, the, the, the story is really sketchy and everybody that is involved um, is dead except for my mother. But she apparently wasn't able to leave the country as an infant and was held there and my grandmother left um so she was like living with my grandfather and a and a wet nurse in the dominican republic as an infant and then was she by any chance saved by a dog would have been amazing um, <laughs> uh uh could be could be and then they went to prove Puerto it Rico after prove that. that she wasn't so the play was based on that that bit of family lore wow and then i wrote do you want to hear more about my plays well i want to know why why plays why oh, why yeah. why did you choose plays over um, I think, novels or short stories? Oh, this is a good question. I I am really hungering to figure out. Maybe you can give me some advice. I want to start writing hmm. fiction. I think um, 
I've been an actor for about 20 years, so plays are sort of, that's the language my, that makes sense. I know sure. in my bones, you know? Yeah. Um, and then that's what I, I went to graduate school for. So I okay. think you sometimes build a, um, you build your practice out of habit. Like sure. it's just all totally out of habit. Um, well, I'll tell you my, my, uh, what's your advice? For advice is, is just do it. And then that, uh, writing a novel is easier than writing a play. I believe. I've heard people say because that. Because a play has to have an intricate and exacting structure uh-huh. that prevents it from becoming tedious or it prevents it from seeming to not ever be coming to a conclusion. Yeah, the systems in a play have to be tight and solid. It doesn't have to be necessarily an Aristotelian narrative. Right. But this the systems can't miss a beat. They have right. to really know how to work together. The structure can collapse. And then yeah. when you're in a play or in a movie where the structure has collapsed, you know it because you're like, I don't, either I don't know what's going on, I don't know how much longer this <laughs> right. is going to be, right. because I don't know where I am in the story. Yeah. Things like that. And a novel is much more forgiving. A novel, you can be discursive. You can think about... Um, ideas and just go off on flights of fancy and then return to the plot Mm -hmm. and uh so yeah it's a piece not unlike herman melville yeah i I was gonna say it's someone who's really taken with ideas and going off in tangents well this is this is where i feel like that when i was thinking about what does this book have in common with um with uh like moby dick and i think in the way that moby dick is a is a study of many things and you learn how a ship works mm. and you learn like the anatomy, the biology of whales and marine life. This book, you learn everything there is to know about sheep. Um, and so don't, In let Iceland. That, don't be, don't let that be lost on you. If, yeah, if that doesn't grab you, then you have, it's, you're like, you have no soul. <laughs> you have a heart no of stone, soul. like the one who doesn't yeah. laugh at the death of little. Nell. You don't appreciate the taste of grass. Yeah. Okay. I think it's time for the lightning round. Lightning round. Oh. God, are you ready, Elizabeth? Oh, no. I don't even know what the lightning round is. Oh, she doesn't even know what the lightning round is, Lance. That's the, that, that's even better. That's even better. I know it's better. I'm just uh. I'm just enjoying the drama. Of the moment here. <laughs> right, it's great. Right. This is great. <laughs> Relishing the fact that we're about to strike her down. Okay, well, yeah. these lightning Have you round ever been questions. Struck by lightning in real life? <laughs> uh, uh, I've seen ball lightning. You've seen ball what? lightning. Never been struck. Okay, no. so you have some idea. Ball what you're about to lightning. Experience. I'm a country kid. I love it. What can I say? <laughs> okay, well, here you go. It's like the most exciting thing that ever happens is ball lightning. Uh, Have you really seen ball exciting. lightning? In our front yard, yeah. Wow, I thought yeah. that was the stuff of legend. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know no. that was real. Well, if you live on cursed land, aha, it's the kind of thing that aha, happens. touche. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Yes. I'm about to, to, to hit you with a battery of questions, the same questions we ask every guest that comes into our den here. Okay. Um, Faster. And it's going to go fast. Ready? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about the first time you fell in love with a book. First book I fell in love with was Franny and Zoe. I J. love Sander. that book. Yeah. And Bravo. Raise high the roof beam carpenter. Specifically, the the Seymour Glass family sure. has just sure. destroyed me. But I love Salinger. Good answer. Has a book ever changed your mind about anything? Uh, yes. I'm just trying to think about what when that would be, what that would mean. I think... Um, I'm um, like me. I'm thinking about like East of Eden. Uh, oh, okay. Or, um, where it's like you're really, uh, uh, or like char- like characters of very low status that sort of, um, turn around and reshape something. Interesting. Yeah. Steinbeck is the best. Steinbeck is the best. 
or uh, or, or you know tortilla flat like the way that those like taking a sort of um like really sort of unsavory circumstances and then um making people beautiful inside them okay uh has a book ever changed your life um yeah i do i do think independent people changed my life and it could have been right because like i said i I was about to give birth when i read this book and that also changed my life we could talk about that a little bit more fantastic has the book ever made you cry oh yeah i'm pretty much uh the ferrante books uh um the uh, my brilliant friend series Anybody else know those books? Do they make you cry? I Do see some heads you? nodding in the in the yeah. audience. Oh, I see some people so crying good. right now. Yeah, yeah. tears Come of on. joy Tough and enough. sadness. <laughs> okay, name a book you've uh, read more than once. Um, Love in the Time of Cholera. Ooh, all this, good one. All of the Salinger books. Okay, um, Salinger did not write Love in the Time of Cholera. But go ahead. No, no, but, but I was, I was in addition to there was a comma in there. You didn't hear my comma. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, okay, here comes the million-dollar question. Yeah, you ready? This is the big one. Mm-hmm. Do you have any poetry committed to memory? Oh, my God. I think I was telling you. Yes. Yes? So the short answer is yes. Can you Wait grace us with some? That's a follow-up question. Are you ready? Yes. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more tum- temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's least hath all too short a date. Sometimes too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. From every fair, from fair sometimes declined by chance, or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that thou owest, nor shall death brag whilst thou wanderest in his shade. But when in eternal lines to time thou growest, so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. The darling buds of May. You have won our lightning round. That's an A+. Plus. I'm not sure what your, your prize is, but you've definitely won. Yeah, oh, you thanks. win. That, that, we need to have uh, uh, her every time. I think yeah. I think she just... I think she, you won another uh, another appearance on our oh, podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, this is like <laughs> the such booby a prize. joy to get to sit around and talk about books. Like, oh, thank you. Weird. Like, what a good idea. We don't like to brag. But... Can, I, can I lightning round y'all? <laughs> sure. Of course you can. My God. Favorite book, LB. Uh, the Iliad. Okay. What? Favorite really? book. Favorite yeah. book. Oh, geez. What? Lightning round. <laughs> yes, what? That's the Iliad. That's my favorite right book. Right now, I would have to say A Brief History of Seven Killings. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Kent is into that. Kent's into it. Yeah. Kent and our live studio audience is into that. That's my favorite. Paul right now. committed to memory? Like a haiku? Yes. I No, I have a, a longer than a haiku. I have <laughs> uh, many poems committed to memory, including yeah. Kubla Khan by uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I don't know if you want to hear it. Do it, do it, do it. <laughs> you can't mention it. I'll without... do it quickly. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where off the sacred river ran through a cavern's measureless demand down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills enfolding many an incense-bearing tree. And there were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm that slanted down a green hill athwart a seat and cover a savage place as holy and enchanted as air beneath the waning moon was haunted by a woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this tumult, oh no, uh, and from this chasm with ceaseless turmoil seizing, as if the earth in fast t- thick pants were breathing, a he- mighty fountain momently was forced, amidst whose swift, half intermitted bursts, huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath a thresher's flail. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion through hill and dale, the sap, the 
sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. Amidst this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesizing war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves. There was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice, a vision in a a damsel in a dulcimer, in a vision I once saw, it was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song, to such deep delight would win me, that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who cried would see me there, and all would cry, Beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise. Is that Eminem or yeah. Coleridge? That's, That's Coleridge. Yeah. What a good nerd you are. Thank you, thank you. Good nerds all around. Liz, do you have any... Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Here it comes. Ready? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yes, actually, I do have a poem committed to memory. Uh-huh. I'm going to top you all. Do it. Here we go. Hats off to hats. <laughs> They're better than dogs or cats. So get your hat, forget your pet, stick it on and you'll be set. Beautiful, beautiful. That's Roscoe. Roscoe Sweetwater. Yes, the Sweetwater. Now I'm thinking of Shel Silverman. There's so many poems. We could just have a poem off. Yes, we yes. could have a poem yes. off. Unfortunately, we have an audience. Uh, let's save it for karaoke. <laughs> poetry karaoke. Interesting. Poetry karaoke. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have been a delightful audience. And of course, I think you'll all join me in thanking Elizabeth Doss. Did a superb job. Gets an A plus on the lightning round. Congratulations. Yes, fantastic. And I'm sure you'll all want to read Independent People now. Right after you read The Goddamn Fool, which is available right there on that, that table, along with my book, Why So Much. And if you're not in the studio audience today, you can buy those books on Amazon.com. And if you're an Austinite, you can go to Malvern Books and oh, buy your cool. copy tomorrow. It's a yes. good place to go. Yes, yes it, it really is. is. They are so supportive yeah. of the, the the local writers. So yes. supportive. And do go to pov-publishing.com to learn all about everything that you'd ever wanted to know or even things that you don't want to know and you are, have to confront because <laughs> sooner or later you have to grow up and face them. Thanks, everyone. Are we opening it up to questions? Oh, uh, oh that is a fantastic why not? idea. Why not? Sure. Any questions for our, our guest? Paper Chairs. Tell us about Paper Chairs. Well, Paper Chairs is um, was sort of born of my first play, Murder Ballad, Murder Mystery, which was actually produced by um, The Vortex and another company called Tuto. And then basically everybody that worked on that production um, died mysteriously. mysteriously um, Foodborne, airborne, bloodborne, something was born. <laughs> Everyone was dead. <laughs> oh, no, we just... So we started a theater company together, and so Paper Chairs works, um, uh, you know, we we mix it up. We do a little bit of kind of devised work. Um, we do a little bit. I've worked on, um, I've made a few translations. I've done a few original plays. Most of my plays are, or most of my translations turn into original plays. Just um, um, one recently, The Divine Narcissus by Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz, yes. um, who is a nun. 
Yeah, a 17th century One of the great Spanish intellects nun. of all time. Yeah, yeah, the New World's first feminist. Um, and so we created an adaptation of that. I've also, um, I like I, a vein I like to work in sometimes is like finishing. I finished an unfinished Lorca play called mm. El Publico, or we translated it to mean the audience. And so I took the play to, I disassembled the play and rewrote it to sort of tell the story of his murder in Granada. Um, at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. Um, and then we've ma- I made this crazy play called Poor Herman, which is based on... Um, so most people think of Herman Melville as like a successful author, but he was a total no. failure in his time. And he wrote two books back-to-back, Moby Dick, and a book no one, most people have never heard of, called Pierre or the Ambiguities. Has anybody here heard of Pierre or the Ambiguities? He's heard of it, this gentleman. Oh, you saw Well, you saw the play. There you go. So the play sort of tells the story of um, um, Herman suffering in his house, unable to finish his play, or unable to finish his novel. His sort of maybe love affair with Nathaniel Hawthorne, who lives close by, and the sort of... Um, um, tensions in his house with his wife and, and, and um, their family and being totally poor. And then, so uh, the basically the first act of the play asks, why did Herman Melville write this book, Pierre, The Ambiguities? And then the second act is a reenactment of that book that's pretty insane. And mm-hmm. then the third act is him um, being buried by his family. And it's told by five women. So all the women in the play put, play Herman Melville. Beautiful. So, yeah, that's and that's my paper. Yeah. Are there any? Have there been any productions of that outside of Austin, or are there any plans for further? We want to do that outside of Austin. We did a reading of it in the Berkshire area um, at the at Herman Melville's house, actually, and that was fantastic. And I'm really hoping Herman Melville's from New York, and um, I would love for New York City to do a product. Someone in New York City to do a production of it. Um, I think it's. I think it's a. I think it's really good. So that's the damn spirit. Oh, that's spirit. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But you'd have to be at every performance. I would have to be at every performance. Well, I, I'd make, I'd make it work. <laughs> yeah, she could do it. All right, thank you. Uh, Any other questions? Take one more. If there is another question. Another question. Well, this has been fantastic. Yes, thank it you has so been much. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was super fun. See you next time. Woo! Isn't it?